It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Well, folks, President Biden leaves for Israel tonight. Series of meetings when he gets there tomorrow. This is an incredible roll of the dice, in my view. Uh, There's a lot at stake here. And you might even say Joe Biden is betting his presidency on this. So let's get right to it. Story number one. It was Tony Blinken who met for something like seven and a half hours uh, yesterday with Bibi Netanyahu, who set this up and who made the announcement. Now, I knew Biden would be going, not necessarily which day, because they let it leak that he was considering an invitation from Israel. And once you do that, and it may have been a bit of a trial balloon, see if it gets shot down. Once you do that, and then if you don't go, I don't know, it looks like you backed off the idea. It looks like almost a vote of no confidence. So that was why he canceled his uh, trip to Colorado yesterday, where he's going to talk about clean energy. You know, another boring speech about the Inflation Reduction Act, which wouldn't have gotten any coverage anyway, because all the cable news networks now are wall-to-wall with the war. I talked about this a little bit on Martha McCollum's show yesterday my view of the the trip and also the 60 Minutes interview uh, that Biden did with Scott Pelley. And Martha wanted to know why why did Pelley tell the audience that Biden was tired when he's tired, his speech suffers. Stutter is what I'm stuttering right now to come up with the right word. Stutter comes back. He had a childhood stutter. And um, I said, well, you know, maybe preparing the audience, but maybe also covering up a bit for Biden, although people were going to see for themselves, right, how the president looked and sounded. So let's talk about this trip. The president of the United States will not only be meeting with Netanyahu, he will be meeting with the leaders on a second leg where he goes to Jordan He'll be meeting with King Abdullah. He'll be meeting with someone from the Palestinian Authority. Um, I believe the leader of Egypt. And perhaps there are a couple I'm leaving out. And so here's the problem. It was relatively easy, and I thought it was maybe the best speech of Biden's presidency, to come out and condemn with great emotion and empathy the horrible atrocities committed by Hamas in the surprise attack on Israel. Now, you have not only Israel starting to get some criticism around the world, which was inevitable for the retaliatory airstrikes and for ordering people in northern Gaza to go to the southern part of the Strip because apparently the north, where you have Gaza City, is where Israel is planning this ground invasion. And by the way, it doesn't take a political genius to realize 
that the ground invasion is going to be delayed a couple of days at a minimum while Biden is in the Middle East. Uh, I mean, the first thing I thought of is, and ground invasion or no ground invasion, there is a safety question here. With all the Secret Service will have and Israeli security will have, you know, you've got Hamas still firing rockets at Israel and vice versa. I'm pretty confident this can be done in a way that protects the president's safety, but it has to cross your mind. And I remember thinking a similar thing when he went to Ukraine early in that war and you had to fly to a certain place and then take a 10-hour train ride. And that brings me to one other thing. I'm not saying this is driving the idea of the trip. Not saying that. But I think 5 to 10% of the calculation, at least among aides, has to be Joe Biden will turn 81 a month from now. This shows, or is attempting to show, that he has the strength, the stamina, to fly to the Middle East himself. I mean, you know, Nixon would have sent Henry Kissinger. Bill Clinton would have sent Madeleine Albright. But Biden is doing it himself. And so there's the physical question, there's the stamina question, and then there's the political question, What's he going to get out of this? Especially with the humanitarian crisis in Gaza growing day by day. Well, I think, I mean, he's not going there without some, as of yet, hidden agreement with Bibi that he can take something away from the trip. That's how diplomacy and politics operate. And there have been delays of several days where... The U.S. keeps saying, well, you know, we're, we're about to get a deal to let into Gaza um, food, water, medicine. You know, because all of these families who have fled their homes now and hope they'll be able to go back um, are, living, are living or existing, maybe is a better word, under the same very difficult conditions and no electricity um, that the people in southern Gaza have had to bear. And there was no question that that was going to create a turn in world opinion. And Netanyahu knew that. So probably at a minimum, he comes away, Biden comes away with an agreement to let in humanitarian aid and provide safe passage for it. But then there's the question of avoiding the wider war. That's really why Joe Biden is going and also meeting with Arab leaders. And it's a, it may be a near impossible mission. So that's the roll of the dice. You might even say Joe Biden is betting his presidency on this. If he has even limited success in improving things and maybe preventing a wider war, He's already warned BB on 60 Minutes not to occupy Gaza. Then the trip will be seen as a success. If things spiral out of control, casualties in Gaza skyrocket, the ground invasion troops are going to stay there for a while, then he will be seen as having failed. 
And that's the thing. So he owns it either way, putting his personal prestige on the line in the hopes of. But look, I mean, this is what Joe Biden does. He's had, what, 50 years experience with foreign policy. He knows many of these leaders from his tenure as VP and as a senator. I would say he's really done the balancing act well up to now, but now it gets about 100 times harder. And he can't work miracles. And history will judge whether this turned out to be, whether Biden's visit turned out to be a turning point in the war or just a speed bump toward what would become a more bloody war, perhaps involving other countries. So, as the New York Times puts it, he will try a high-stakes trip, try to worse, forestall excuse me, a worsening humanitarian crisis in Gaza while also preventing the war between Israel and Hamas from spreading. Coming amid heightened expectations of an Israeli invasion of Gaza. Two million people remain trapped in Gaza. Well, that's true. The borders are all sealed. Desperate for water and other critical supplies and fearful of Israeli airstrikes that Hamas says has already killed more than 2,800 people. The uh, death toll in Israel has surpassed 1,400 people. Biden's trip will add to his administration's efforts to head off a wider conflict. And remember... What we learned yesterday is that the Pentagon has asked about 2,000 Marines and sailors to be ready to send to, to go to Israel, not in a combat role, but to help with logistics and um, medicine, a humanitarian mission. So they haven't called them up yet. But of course, there are, of course, uh, the military personnel on those two aircraft carriers that have gone to the region. First, the Gerald Ford, and secondly, the Dwight Eisenhower. But now you have Iran sort of coming out of the closet, dropping the pretense that has nothing to do with uh, this murderous, barbaric series of massacres by Hamas. Iran, also a longtime supporter of Hezbollah in Lebanon to the north. Iran foreign minister publicly saying that preemptive action against Israel by regional militias, including Hezbollah, was possible in the next few hours if Israel strikes in Gaza continued to kill civilians. And the foreign minister of Iran said that their hands are on the trigger. Well, that's a pretty uh, blunt warning, wouldn't you say? And so the Iran factor, you know, is one that, that's the one area where President Biden has been criticized, where he's generally received bipartisan praise for his handling the situation so far, not so much with Iran. Now, as the Washington Post reports, a growing number of Dems are pushing the White House to take stronger action to restrain Israel's response to the recent Hamas attacks. Democrats have been almost entirely unified in the wake of the October 7th attacks. But a small yet growing number of Democrats have been urging the Biden administration to do more 
to encourage Israel to limit civilian casualties in its counterattack and also ensure that innocent Palestinians are able to receive basic needs. So now we have the split with the left. Yesterday, five House Democrats, led by Rashida Tlaib, um, introduced the resolution urging the administration to call for an immediate de-escalation and ceasefire in Israel and occupied Palestine. Look at that phrasing. Well, of course, the president has been trying to do this. And of course, on the humanitarian aid part, he hasn't succeeded so far. So eight other progressive Democrats, including AOC, including Ilhan Omar, signed on to this. So that's a, you know, it's kind of the mirror image of the Republican Party where, you know, 10 to 20 holdouts, and we'll get to the speaker's race later, um, can block action. And, you know, Biden is not siding with them. Immediate ceasefire means Israel doesn't really have the right to protect itself. But there is growing concern, and I share it, about innocent victims. If we care about all the innocent Israelis who were slaughtered, and Israel at least tries to provide warnings to prevent or minimize civilian deaths, then we have to care about innocent Palestinians, you know, living in poverty, who might inadvertently be killed, and obviously that's happened in past skirmishes. Oh, here's Ilan Omar retweeting a cartoon from a former Greek finance minister depicting Biden telling Netanyahu, we support Israel's right to defend itself with any war crime of its choice. Well, excuse me, Congresswoman, but the war crimes here have been committed by the people that you obviously support in Hamas and in Gaza. They're the ones who have killed, raped women, killed women, killed children, killed babies. And now I've been waiting for this, and you knew this was coming. Yesterday, Hamas released a hostage video showing Mia Shem, 21-year-old woman who was abducted during the massacre at the music festival. And she was saying she wanted to come home and secure her freedom. Of course, she's going to say anything that they tell her to say. It's no accident they they picked a 21-year-old woman who would immediately attract the most sympathy. And her mom was pleading for her release, saying, all I want from world leaders is to bring my baby home. I bet you there'll be more of this stuff. This is why they take hostages. And in Israel, if you don't do this, that, or the other thing, we start killing them one by one. This is a bloodthirsty regime, to use President Biden's word. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. Just adding here that Egypt, you know, could open its border in the north in minutes, but is choosing not to, or at least for now. That's why Biden is going to meet with the leader of Egypt as well. Gaza says no water has reached uh, the Gaza Strip 
in 10 days. Over the years, NPR has relied on Honest Baba to be its eyes and ears in Gaza. This is a Washington Post piece. She's a Palestinian producer. She's interviewed civilians seeking shelter and so on. But meanwhile, she has something else to worry about. I was forced to leave my job to go to my family in order to evacuate them, he told NPR. Where am I going to hide them? Is there any safe place in Gaza? While the U.S. networks uh, have shipped some of their star anchors to the relative safety of Israel. I don't know if I'd go that far. Anderson Cooper has been there. Fox's John Roberts started reporting from there yesterday. And other broadcast network anchors. Uh, Journalists within the Gaza Strip are contending with a massive bombing campaign, electrical and internet outrages, and food and water shortages. And the psychological burden of reporting on the unfolding humanitarian crisis while living it themselves. I mean, this is a tough, tough, tough assignment. BBC Arabic reporter Adnan Elbersh and his team discovered their own neighbors, relatives, and friends are among those injured and killed. Elbersh saying on the air, this is my local hospital. Inside are my friends, my neighbors. This is my community. Today has been one of the most difficult days in my career. I have seen things I can never unsee. By the way, Donald Trump, who took a lot of flack for criticizing Netanyahu, mostly the timing of it and saying Hezbollah is very smart, um, gave a speech yesterday in which he said he would bar refugees from Gaza from coming to the U.S. as president, expand his uh, first-term Muslim travel ban. He said in Iowa that he will immediately begin ideological screening for all immigrants and bar those who sympathize with Hamas and Muslim extremists. His proposals would mark a dramatic expansion of the controversial and legally dubious policies that drew alarm from immigrant rights and civil liberty activists, but helped him win the GOP nomination in 2016. Uh, he also said yesterday that he, well, he was president, he stood up for Israel, true, and Judeo-Christian civilization and values. Now, I don't know. Based on what law you could refuse to let immigrants in based on ideological screening. I mean, if somebody says, I support Hamas, Hamas in its uh, continuing effort to murder Jews and, and Israel should be wiped off the map. Yeah, I don't want to let that person in either. But can you legally do it on the basis of opinions? Not that extreme example. I mean, you know, people who want to come to this country are not going to say, hi, I'm a Muslim extremist. But interesting political tack. Story two. Uh, Rich Lowry, National Review, not a Trump fan, And you might think from the lead of this piece that he's going to beat up on Trump, but it takes an interesting turn. Uh, Donald Trump, true to form, said some hideously stupid things about Hezbollah and Israel, as I mentioned a few moments ago. His tendency to extol the smarts of some of the worst malefactors around the world and to put his personal animosities, often driven by other people not accepting his delusions about the 2020 election, above any other consideration, is terrible and unfixable. Okay, you figure he's just going to completely and totally load. 
unload. But Lowry now says this. His comments aren't likely to hurt him. It's not only that many Republicans have an impulse to excuse or look past anything Trump says or does, although that's certainly true. It's that his relatively crisis-free presidency in foreign affairs has created a sense, perhaps an accurate one, that he cowed adversaries into not challenging the U.S. Now, that may have just been luck. Four years is in a large sample size. But the argument that adversaries feared him and therefore acted with a measure of restraint is intuitive, at the very least. The fact that Trump was erratic and took perceived slights so seriously made it difficult to know how he would react to any given provocation. Maybe he'd just bluster. Maybe he'd take it further, but who would want to find out? This is the sort of madman theory of foreign affairs. You know, as it turned out, although Trump did launch airstrikes against ISIS and pretty much take ISIS out of the picture. Um, Trump spoke loudly, writes Rich, and carried a, a stick of indeterminate size. And this was as good as carrying a big stick. In short, when Trump says Hamas wouldn't have done this on his watch, many Republicans, and perhaps independents in a general election, will tend to believe him. To his credit, Biden has said the appropriate things in the wake of Hamas' attack, but sentiments go only so far. Interesting. Okay, number three. In that January 6th-related indictment, the federal case, and at the request of Special Counsel Jack Smith, the judge in the case in New York, Tanya Chutkin, has imposed a limited gag order on Trump yesterday, restricting him from making public statements attacking the witnesses, specific prosecutors, or court staff members involved in the case. Uh, The judge said Trump's free speech rights do not permit him to, quote, launch a pretrial smear campaign against those people. No other defendant would be allowed to do so, and I'm not going to allow it in this case. But the narrowly tailored order explicitly left Trump to free as he pursues his presidential campaign to continue uh, disparaging, I should say, the Justice Department and Joe Biden. Well, as well it should. It even allowed him to assert that he believed his criminal prosecution was politically motivated. So the judge is leaving Trump some leeway to attack her as well. Though when you talk about court personnel, I don't know. Now, she also said that Mike Pence, who is not only obviously running for president, but, you know, I had on my show a few weeks ago, but is a witness in the case. She said Trump could go after him as long as the attacks did not touch on Pence's role in the criminal prosecution. Now, this is an Obama appointee. She did not address how she intends to enforce this. Um, Penalties could range from a reprimand or a fine to jail time. Uh, Trump told voters in Iowa, they put a gag order on me. and I'm not supposed to be talking about things bad people do. So we'll be appealing very quickly. I'll be the only politician in history where I won't be allowed to criticize people. Now, gag orders in cases are not uncommon. Posing even a partial gag order on a former president of the United States who's running for his old job, well, obviously we're in uncharted territory in here. And apparently this this hearing yesterday in Manhattan got quite heated. Um, 
Judge Chutkin saying Trump should not enjoy any special privileges in the case as a presidential candidate. She was trying to protect people uh, from being threatened and to keep Trump's bullying remarks from spiraling into violence. This trial will not yield to the election cycle, she said. But Trump's lawyer, Lauro, said Trump's the victim of tyranny by the government and totalitarianism. He tried to reframe the statements by Trump as merely examples speaking truth against oppression. At one point, Judge Chutkin noted that Laura was speaking as much to his client, Trump, as to her, and she warned him to tone it down a bit. Okay, here's what else uh, Trump said in uh, Iowa. A judge gave a gag order. A judge doesn't like me too much. Her whole life is not liking me, but she gave a gag order. You know what a gag order is? You can speak badly about your opponent. But this is weaponry, all being done because Joe Biden is losing the election and losing very, very badly to us in the polls. He's losing badly. And then this is the most interesting sentence that all, that provides a sort of a ray of insight into Trump's mindset. The former president saying, what they don't understand is that I am willing to go to jail if that's what it takes for our country to win and become a democracy again. And the audience cheered. So Trump is clearly thinking, I mean, look, he faces four criminal cases. If he's convicted on just one charge in any one of them, two federal, two state, uh, he could well face a jail sentence. And he's got to be thinking about that. It's got to weigh on his mind. Maybe he won't. Maybe there'll be hung juries. I don't know. But it's interesting that he is now saying, you know, he's trying to portray himself as a martyr, that my going to jail would be because I'm fighting for all of you. Oh, and here's a uh, finally little tidbit to lighten the uh, fun here, to lighten the tone, I should say. Biden's campaign has joined, wait for it, True Social, Trump's social media company, to troll his once unlikely future opponent. Uh, Biden campaign aides leaked their intention to Fox News Digital yesterday, saying, hey, we want to meet the voters where they are and push back on disinformation. There's very little truth, in quotes, happening on Truth Social. But, one Biden aide told Fox, at least now it'll be a little fun. Well, let's see how this goes. Converts, welcome. Okay, it's, it's trolling at a pretty high level. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. All right, let's get to the speaker's race. Today is the day that Jim Jordan um, plans to push votes on the House floor in the hope of becoming the next House speaker. Now, he's made a fair amount of progress. Jim Jordan has rolled out several key endorsements. Uh, that was yesterday in a political piece today. A surprising turn that has some in his party privately believing the Ohio Republican has a shot after all. 24 hours, this was obviously written yesterday, before the full House will vote, the judiciary chairman and his allies have managed to chip away at a significant block of opposition that had seemed insurmountable. That include two public, uh, excuse me, two lawmakers who had publicly vowed not to support Jordan. One is Congresswoman Ann Wagner from Missouri. She had railed against Jordan's behavior 
towards Steve Scalise. I mean, she just said things like, no way, I will never vote for this guy. And House Armed Services Chairman Mike Rogers, who had also backed Steve Scalise when he won the endorsement because he got the most votes, but he withdrew because he couldn't get anywhere the magic number of 17. Another holdout, uh, Congressman Vern Buchanan of Florida, said he would be, quote, offering my support on the House floor to Jordan. Buchanan, a senior member of the Florida GOP delegation, is another significant get, given the three uh, Republicans from the Sunshine State are still holding out. But others were very skeptical. Jordan, who sent a letter to his colleagues, I feel good about the momentum we have, and I think we're real close. Still, not every Republican is convinced that Jordan has enough momentum to clear this high bar, which is if five Republicans, just five Republicans, this is exactly what Kevin McCarthy faced, vote against Jordan, he doesn't get to be Speaker. He may be uh, converting some folks, changing some minds. That's politics. There may be some whispered assurances, and there certainly have been implied or not so implied threats, maybe not by Jordan himself, but some of his allies. Hey, you know, if you don't vote for our guy, he becomes speaker, yeah, you know, you'll probably face a primary from the right next spring, which no member wants to hear. So meanwhile, uh, as of yesterday, they were still looking for a protest candidate to run against Jordan, maybe a McCarthy loyalist or a Scalise loyalist, I don't think they found one yet. You know, just to give a place, give an option for people who are still opposed to Jordan, don't like him, think he's too conservative, you name it, don't like his tactics. Um, but you got to have a name. You got to have someone. One GOP member granted anonymity to speak about internal party dynamics. Said Jordan's team sees all the holdouts, of course they're going to say this, as potentially persuadable, except for Ken Buck, who uh, says the two of them have a history. Republicans said they were particularly shocked by Ann Wagner flipping. She told Politico just Friday, absolutely not. But Jordan's allies kicked off a pressure campaign posting the office phone numbers of holdouts online directing the rage of the base and conservative media personalities and it appears to have had success. All right, let's uh, sign off here with story five, which is about X, or formerly known as Twitter. Neiman Foundation reports that a lot of people threatened to leave Twitter. Not many of them have actually done it. This was true even before Elon Musk uh, bought the place. But the parade of calamity since... This is the Neiman Foundation, cutting back on moderation, unplugging servers, reinstating banned accounts, replacing verified check marks with paid subscription badges, throttling access to news sites, true, blaming the ADL for a decline in advertising. Remember he said he had no choice but to sue the Anti-Defamation League? I guess that hasn't happened. Has made stepping away more appealing, either because the timeline is toxic or the site simply doesn't function the way it used to the Neiman Foundation at Harvard, not a big fan, clearly, of Elon Musk and his version of Twitter. 
So last April, the company gave NPR a reason to quit. It, enabled, it labeled, remember this? The network U.S. state-affiliated media. Media. You'd think the uh, media guy would be able to pronounce media. But it's been uh, already a long week. A designation at odds with Twitter's own definition. NPR stopped posting. Here's where we get to the good stuff. On its account on April 4th. A week later, it posted its last update. Many member stations, including uh, Minnesota Public Radio, LAS in Los Angeles, KUOW in Seattle, did the same thing. Six months later, we can see that the effects of leaving Twitter have been negligible. A memo circulated to NPR staff says traffic has dropped by only a single percentage point as a result of leaving Twitter. Though traffic from the platform was small already and accounted for just 2% of traffic before the posting stopped. Well, it's still a 50% drop. While NPR's main account had 8.7 million followers and the politics account had just under 3 million, the memo says the platform's algorithm updates made it increasingly challenging to reach active users. You often saw a near-immediate drop-off in engagement after tweeting. So, here's Gabe Rosenberg, audience editor for KCUR in Kansas City, which also stopped posting, quoted as saying, It made up so little of our web traffic, such a marginal amount. But, and I think this is the key thing, as uh, this Neiman Foundation report says, Twitter wasn't just about clicks. Posting was table stakes for building reputation and credibility, either as a news outlet or as an individual journalist. To be on Twitter was to be part of a conversation, and that conversation could inform stories or supply sources. It was an indispensable tool. That kind of connection is hard to give up, but it's not impossible to replace. Well, we'll see whether it's impossible to replace. And I agree with some of the criticisms of X. But Twitter punched way above its weight, would be the way I put it. Because it did influence stories, because it would drive a lot of stories, web stories. Oh, Twitter is revolting against X, and it's easy to do. You don't have to to leave your desk. And then that would, in turn, often show up on cable, because cable say, oh, look, this thing seems to be hot. All these people tweeting about it, you know. I mean, it could be 100 people tweeting about it. It could be 1,000 people tweeting about it. Um, so I guess Twitter was always sort of overstated as a driver of traffic, although, you know, I continue to post um, videos from my appearances, from Media Buzz, and just to, you know, make comments and observations and analysis from time to time about hot stories in the news. How many people are seeing that? That's a very good question. But Facebook, in some ways, is even worse because Facebook has kind of tweaked its algorithm in a way that brought dramatic uh, reductions in traffic to most news organizations. And even with its new platform, Threads, which is basically a Twitter ripoff, um, the guy who's running it says, you know, we're not particularly interested in news. We want this to be a place of, you know, peace, love, and conversation and so forth. We'll see after an incredible surge for people to sign up how that does as well. Whatever happens in the rest of the media world, I hope you will keep listening. 
for to the unfiltered views aired on this podcast. I really think podcasts have become a force. And I'll talk about that another time. So let you get on with your day. Thank you again for listening. We'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.